The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Leslie Marshall Show for this Monday, April, what are we, April 25th, just a day before, well, what I think will be the final primary date on the calendar that will actually matter. Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island will all finally get their chance at the dance here with 118 delegates in stake in the Republican race and 384 delegates up for the Democrats. Good afternoon. My name is Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund, sitting in for Leslie Marshall this Monday. And of course, we're coming to you live from our beautiful studios here at CAP. And across the table from me is my good colleague, uh, Benton Strong. He's the Managing Director of Communications here at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Benton, good afternoon. Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Good. Thank you so much for joining us. And you, too, by the way, can be part of the conversation. 888-6-LESLIE-888-653-7543. Now, in case you were enjoying your weekend uh, and you missed what is the latest weird development here in the Republican race. It's this strange alliance between John Kasich and Ted Cruz to defeat Donald Trump. Now, they've both admitted that they can't do it on their own. And so they've come to this weird understanding that each candidate is going to stay away from some of the states that are coming up on the calendar in order to give the other a chance at a one-on-one race with Donald Trump. They've since walked back from that agreement. But what does that tell us about where things stand as we move into the convention? I mean, this is like fairly unprecedented, this kind of very public arrangement. I mean, amazingly, first of all, as if you were sleeping last night, since the announcement was made late last night in in back-to-back press releases from the two campaigns in what can only be referred to as the 21st century version of a Friday news dump, right. as late as you can possibly make it happen. But look, I mean, it, it's it's not it, it's not shocking they're going here, but it is largely unprecedented, as you, as you pointed out. They've been talking about different ways to go after Donald Trump for months and months and months now, and none of no candidate in by themselves have, has been able to really eclipse him. In fact, tomorrow, and this is what's so interesting about this announcement, is we're not talking about what's going to happen with Donald Trump tomorrow, which is he's probably going to run the table, and he's probably going to build his delegate count. And so this is, as he pointed out, a desperation move by these two candidates to figure out some way to build enough delegates to still be relevant when the convention comes. Because the other piece that you can't forget, when when Ted Cruz takes Indiana because John Kasich isn't running there and John Kasich takes Oregon because Ted Cruz isn't running there as part of their deal or however it may come out, what you can't forget is that both of them are already mathematically eliminated from getting the 1,237 delegates they would need to win on the first ballot. And so this is literally just a last-ditch effort to still exist in the middle of July when it's time for the convention. To me, the great error here is – 
why would how do they think that they're just going to tell their supporters, hey, you vote for Kasich and there you vote for Cruz and people will just do that? I mean, it seems to me if at this late stage of the game you support someone named John Kasich, who's been presenting himself as this great, moderate, rational, reasonable Republican, why in the world would you vote for Ted Cruz? If you're a John Kasich voter and you've been there this whole time when he's only won one state, hasn't made any kind of splash, why would you vote for Kasich? And then on the other hand, as a Cruz voter, why would you vote for somebody who expanded Medicaid, Obamacare in Ohio, and you've been told by your candidate that that's going to you know, ruin the country? You mean your candidate actually shut down the government? Shut down the government, right. And now... Interestingly, in their defense, Igor, and 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 it's a weird thing to say, but in their defense, go ahead, defend them. The the one thing we've seen throughout this cycle, this primary cycle in the Republican primary, is that there has been a, a lot of undecideds on election day, and late breaking voters have tended to break away from Donald Trump, and that's probably because. Uh, they, you know, liked what they heard from Donald Trump when he was far away, and then he came to their state and he said something completely outlandish. And the other candidates on stage looked a little more reasonable and like someone you would want to support. And so, weirdly, from a kind of roundabout strategic standpoint, if they think that there are these late-breaking voters, then and there's only one other option, then they're in a better place to actually split the vote with Donald Trump if only one of them is running. But you also can't get away from the fact that this is about as undemocratic as it gets, right? This is a party that's been plotting up ways to take this election away from Donald Trump for several months now. And whether they do that at the convention, through the delegate process, or the rules, or you name it, but to to, as Donald Trump himself actually referred to, collude with your opponents, which in some industries is, in fact, illegal, Uh, that's about as undemocratic as the process can get to say to your voters, don't vote for me, vote for the other guy as long as it's not Trump, because we want to make sure that the guy who's winning doesn't actually actually win. 8886-LESLIE, 888-653-7543, talking to Benton Strong, Managing Director of Communications here at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Benton, but realistically speaking, Trump here is going to run the table, at least is going to do very well in most of these states, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. Is this the last chance for Cruz and for Kasich to have any kind of chance uh, until they get to the convention in July. It, it feels to me, at least, like this is the last, and we'll get to the Democratic side in, in a moment here, but it feels like the last set of primaries that are really going to matter. I know a lot of people were excited about California in June, but it feels like if they can't make a stand here, if they can't duplicate Wisconsin, which was Trump's stumble, in these five states, I mean, it's, it's pretty much over for them. I, mean, I think that's right. I think you've seen Trump recover from that Wisconsin stumble and run away with 60 percent of the vote in New York. New York values seem to do pretty well for Donald yes. Trump and not Ted yeah. Cruz. And you can't forget that Pennsylvania is a border state. And, and you're talking about uh, areas of the country where Trump has done well, the Northeast particularly, and as, as I think T- Chuck Todd in his infamous language is referring it to as the Acela primary. Mm. Uh, uh, these are places that have seemed to uh, do well for Trump or where he's, where he's been successful. And so when I mean, you look at some of the numbers, and he's over 50 percent in polling in places like Connecticut. He's in the mid-40s in Maryland and Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, over 50 in Delaware. It seems pretty clear, and polling has been pretty indicative of the 2016 Republican primary. And so it seems pretty clear he's going to run away with these. And most interestingly, to your point about this being the big one and, and kind of setting this, the stage before California, 
it was a great conversation over the weekend about how a candidate like Trump would do in a place like California. And we cannot forget that celebrities have won that state multiple times, <laughs> dating back to Ronald Reagan himself. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger, who beat the would-be first Latino governor of the state of California. So so not only is this the primary that looks like it could put Trump over the hump, it also would probably set him up to just not end the ball game in early June in California. But to zoom out just a little bit, and this deal is just the latest in a series of efforts by Republicans, some of them establishments, some of them not traditionally, like Ted Cruz, trying to stop Trump and failing. Let me ask you the big question of the election to me, which is why hasn't anybody been able to stop Trump? Why has what, – what's the never Trump, whatever the hashtags are that have never failed yep. time and time again? Why have they failed? Why will this fail again? You know, it's become a cliche in the 2016 election, but Trump is the ultimate non-insider outside Washington candidate. He is – the person and I don't actually think it's the it's the crazy terminology or the aggressiveness that he's had on stage or any of those things. It's that even Ted Cruz has tried to paint himself as anti Washington, lives there. His wife works on Wall Street. He shut down the government three years ago. He's clearly a creature of D.C. now. He was a Supreme Court uh, clerk. He's been around in the system for a long time. Trump fits the profile, but. Heavily conservative Republican voters have been looking for for a long time. And that's why this move to take it away from him could be so detrimental for the Republican Party because it's exactly the message he's been carrying throughout the entirety of his campaign. Yeah, and I would argue breaks away from those establishment Republican ideas of privatizing Medicare and Social Security and saying, no, no, we're going to protect that. We're going to take a quick break. Brenton Strong, Managing Director of Communications for Center for American Progress Action Fund, is going to stay with us. I'm Igor Volsky. Quick break. Back right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. the Tuesday of another presidential primary. I'm Igor Volsky sitting in for Leslie Marshall as we look ahead to Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. They're all up tomorrow. And joining Benton and I here in the studio is Alice Olstein. She's political reporter at Think Progress. That's thinkprogress.org. And of course, do follow her on Twitter at Alice Olstein. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. You have covered an area of this race that I feel really doesn't get the attention it deserves, the coverage it deserves, and that is the difficulty that some people have had across the country in voting in this primary, long lines, um, not being able to vote, votes not being counted, as we saw in New York, there was, there was a big problem there. Take us on a tour of the states that are up tomorrow, and are we going to face similar challenges there? Because at the end of the day, it's good to know this now, because it's going to be a big preview for the general election, and if it's a close race, you don't want to have a Florida 2.0. 
Absolutely. Well, the states that are coming up on Tuesday mostly should be okay. They have fairly progressive policies surrounding voting. For example, Maryland has been allowing people to do same-day registration during early voting, and they've made that very accessible. And we've seen record turnout in early voting in Maryland this year. So we're going to hopefully see some high participation, which has been true across the country in this cycle. A lot of people turning out who have not felt engaged in politics before. Trump reminds us all the time, all the people he's bringing out. Yeah. On both sides, we're seeing that. (laughs) More people have voted for Hillary than for Trump, just to remind you all. That's true. Um, However, in in some of the states, we could see some potential problems. Um, We all remember what happened in Arizona with the five-hour voting lines and people very frustrated, and now there's a lawsuit and people want to redo the whole election again. And folks are pointing to Rhode Island and are worried that something similar could happen there because the state has closed two-thirds of its polling places for tomorrow's election. And for some people, even having to travel a short distance could be difficult. For example, there used to be a polling place on Brown University's campus. Now it's been moved off campus for a student that might not have a car, might not be able to, you know, before they could just run and vote between classes. Now it could be a whole project, and for some people that could make the difference between voting or not voting. I talked to students in Wisconsin a few weeks ago who waited hours to vote in line, and they barely had time to do that. Some of them gave up and left the line because they Mm. had to go to class. Speaking of college students, uh, (laughs) voters who have been supporting Bernie Sanders. So after New York, when Hillary Clinton won and won big, a lot of us said, well, this is probably it for Bernie. Uh, it feels like if he loses most of these states tomorrow, and it feels like what Connecticut is probably going to be his best chance, um, but everywhere else I think he's running behind Hillary. Benton, you're looking at the polls there. Is this then, uh, let me start with you, Benton, then uh, Alice, is this the final moments of his campaign? Yeah, I mean, first let me say something about vo- about voting. Just to, just to close the loop on that, I think one of the cool things that we are going to see tomorrow, as much challenge as we are having with voting at this up to this point in time, is forty thousand former felons in Maryland who will be able to vote, which is a really big deal. And it, you know, we'll come on the heels of this announcement on Friday of Terry McAuliffe changing the law there to have two hundred thousand former felons be able to vote, and that is a really positive direction. Not only with the disproportional impact it has on certain communities, but also Maryland, which will be the highest percentage likely of black voters, which is one of the most disproportionately impacted communities. And we'll on get, this get into that country. more. So that's a in big the, thing. But in the next so hour. so the, to answer your question though, Igor. Yes, it very well could be the the moment at least where Bernie Sanders has to reckon with the fact that he cannot get to the number he needs to get to before the convention. And we are seeing already on the Republican side the impact of, of even thinking about going to a floor fight in the convention. And we just know that it's not good for whatever party is doing it. We know that it means that you're not presenting a united front and a united message against your opposition going into the fall. And I don't think Bernie Sanders wants to do that to the Democratic Party. I don't think that's his goal. I I actually think that's the goal of some of these Republican candidates. I think that's what they are trying to achieve at the at the convention. But if you look at the numbers, it actually looks like Rhode Island is where he could do the best. Uh, but then then Connecticut after that. But but the other three states, it looks like he has very little chance of winning. And it, particularly if she's able to really run up a lead in a place like Pennsylvania and Maryland, it's hard to see Bernie Sanders having an opportunity to catch up. 
384 delegates at stake for the Democrats. Alice Olstein, political reporter at thinkprogress.org, you've spoken to these young voters at these Bernie rallies. What would it take for them to support Hillary? I mean, this is a big question for her. How does she speak to those voters? How does she convince them to vote for her in the general election? It's a real issue because even in states where she's won decisively, she's still lost the 18 to 29-year-olds by a pretty big margin. And so we've seen her struggle with those college-age voters across the whole country. And she will have a task ahead of her to to bring them in if she's the nominee and if Bernie drops out, which is looking increasingly likely, as Benton said. So I think for some, it's about policy. For some, it's about her baggage and her history, people really have different, they're, they're in different places about this election. And um, one of the issues, you, you mentioned that Bernie is likely to do well in Rhode Island. And I think with the voting problems we could see there, I think that'll tie into the narrative that a lot of his supporters are uh, participating in, which is that the reason he is not winning right now is because of voter suppression and because of dirty tricks, um, either by the Republican Party, talked about the debates being scheduled and times that no one listened and the superdelegates and this and that and the other thing. Um, and certain aspects of that could be true, but in the end, he just hasn't gotten enough votes. I saw a poll uh, that said 13% of Hillary voters would vote for, I'm sorry, of Bernie Sanders voters would vote for Donald Trump if the choice was between Hillary and Trump. Who are these 13%? Do we know who these people are that, given that choice, would vote for Trump? I don't think they're college students, mostly. I think that just anecdotally from my reporting, it seems like that would more be the low-income, white, maybe rural voters that are somewhat attracted to both Bernie and Trump. Yeah, I would call those libertarians, most, like, <laughs> most likely. I mean, these are people who are, who are, as we talked about earlier in the earlier segment, who you know are frustrated with the political system and are frustrated with Wall Street. And they hear what they want to hear from Donald Trump on more conservative issues, and then and then they're hearing what they want to hear from Bernie Sanders on purely economic and Wall Street issues. That, that would be the flip side of your point, though, is that one big thing for Hillary Clinton coming out of New York is that she saw a huge uh, majority of Democratic voters say that they would vote for her, even if they'd voted for Bernie in the primary, they'd vote for her in the general election if she were the nominee. And that's that number that she really needs if she wins. Well, it's a big contrast. It's a big, you move into the general and you see a big contrast, for, even for those young voters to say to them, hey, guys, the choice is this Donald guy who's created all kinds of mayhem in this country and Hillary. And it would be up to Bernie, I think, to say that mm -hmm. and to say that over and over again. All right. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Alice Olstein, thank you so much. Benton Strong. We move ahead on the Leslie Marshall Show. Quick break. Your calls right after this. Stay with us. Continues as we 
Well, not only preview the big states that are up in the election on Tuesday, tomorrow, but also the big issue. The Flint water crisis was an issue that Hillary Clinton embraced and embraced tightly ahead not only of the Michigan primary, but also uh, has been a staple in her speeches ever since. And joining me now to discuss the ongoing crisis is Tracy Ross. She's associate director for for poverty to for the poverty to prosperity program it's at the center for american progress a lot of peas and you yeah. think i would know <laughs> working here with you but still by the way your calls at 8886 if you want to comment on the election or uh, the flint water crisis and tracy's also on twitter tracy l ross with an e t-r-a-c-e-y oh that's an important note an important igor with an o there you go there you go <laughs> you know legally actually when i immigrated they spelled it with a U really? and to change it to a no because people would call me oh. Igor. Oh, Igor. And See, no, these Igor. distinctions Igor. we have to let people it's know. It's tough for us. <laughs> so where do we stand here? You know, this was something that was certainly uh, brought to national attention mm -hmm. when we first found out that the water was contaminated, that uh, the population had to have bottled water, that a lot of the pipes in Flint, Michigan were lead pipes and that they had to be replaced. And then things kind of quieted down. The national attention went elsewhere. And so catch us up on Flint, Michigan. What's the state of the recovery? Sure. So I, I'm glad that you mentioned, though, that, that this has been an issue in the presidential election. As we know, there was a, a debate held um, uh, earlier this year that took place in Flint. So a lot of that uh, attention was really important um, in terms of making this an issue of national significance and drawing parallels between Flint and other cities that are experiencing similar environmental hazards. Unfortunately, um, unless you're really digging around for the news or you know you're paying attention to some of the Michigan papers, this isn't isn't in the news as much. But there have been um, a few developments. So. Early last week, Governor Snyder announced that he was going to be taking on a 30-day challenge in which he would be drinking uh, water from Flint, filtered water, to show the residents that they should have confidence in the water system. Now, this is the water that Flint residents are currently drinking. He said, I will be drinking the water you are drinking. Correct. So he took a three-gallon jug, which three gallons of water for 30 days. I don't understand how that, that works right? out. So I was reading something that said that um, because his wife is also going to be engaging in the challenge, that's about three quarters of a cup a day or something um, to that effect. So he, he is taking some water supply from Flint back to, to um, his home in Lansing and would be engaging in this water challenge. Now, he's come under criticism for this, and I think rightly so, because this seems like a stunt. People have real concerns about the quality of their water with good reason. If, if I were a Flint resident, I would find it hard to, to trust the system ever again, really. And, um, you know, so he's doing this. And I, and I guess the the purpose is, again, like I said, to, to restore trust. But what it really seems like is a is a stunt that it's saying, oh, residents, you're you know, you're still afraid to um, bathe your children in this water. You're afraid to drink this water. But look at me. I'm doing it. You know, your fears are unfounded. So I think it's um, insulting to a lot of people. And then the funny or not so funny thing is that he's currently in Europe. So um, or he might with be back. Jug. I'm not sure. <laughs> but they could, could not travel with his, exactly. couldn't travel with his jug of water. But he went to um 
to Europe later last week um, to uh, work on some attracting businesses to Michigan. So, you know, it's 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 work that he has to do as governor. But the timing was such that it just seems like, well, that's great that you get to have a break from this challenge. You know, he said he would return and resume the challenge. But it the optics of it, which, you know, it's a PR stunt to begin with, but the optics of it look terrible when you say, I'll drink the Flint, but water. But first, I'm going to go to Switzerland. And Well, help me understand this, because the water that Flint residents are currently drinking, this filtered water, where is it sourced from? Because it's not coming through the pipes, which have to be... Uh, changed, which is a, is a story so, in and of itself here. So the the infrastructure, the water um, was switched back to the Detroit system back in October. Um, there remains risks still, though, because they re-engineered the water infrastructure in order to support that switch. So back April 2014, that's when they switched from using the Detroit system originally to the um, to the Flint um, River. When they re-engineered the pipes, they didn't. Um, put any protections around uh, corrosion of the pipes. So they put in this new faulty system and it, that remains, even though they switched the water source. So there's still problems. And um, the the uh, professor from Virginia Tech who originally tested the water and helped sound the alarm of this um, said that he retested it as recently as uh, April 14th, I believe it was. Um, and the water, the lead levels are still not lower to where he would want them to be. So there's, it's still a risk. It might not be as high as it was when he tested it back in August, but it's still a risk for families. Still a risk, and particularly for children. Now, he doesn't have young children that I know of, or I'm does not sure he? if he does. I, I don't believe so. But it's one thing for a grown man to drink this water and to take the responsibility and to say, hey, you know what? I am responsible for my own health, and right. I proving to you, a resident of Flint, that this is safe. I'll drink this water. It's a completely other thing to say, I will give this water to my child, uh, and I will potentially jeopardize my child's you know, brain development and my child's entire future on water we don't know is safe. So if this water is not as safe as it should be, then he's being, in fact, counterproductive to the families of Flynn saying you should feed this water to your children. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there there are still risks to adults. There, you know, have been cases detected of Legionnaire's disease. So Snyder could have some of impacts, but you're absolutely right that the harshest impacts to lead exposure um, are those that uh, among children, because it does uh, impact their brain development. And a lot of the symptoms take years to really um, uh, make themselves evident. So it's it's really a neglectful thing for him to do to pr- um, promote drinking the water at this stage. All right. Our producer tells us Snyder does have three children. But I don't know, Andrew, if the children are drinking the water. Uh, They're not participating in the challenge thing because conveniently I, the, that not I did read that it was him and his wife. There was no mention of children participating. So it's good to know that he has children. I'm glad that he's not having his children participate. Yes. 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Uh, Tracy Ross, she's the Associate Director for Poverty to Prosperity here at the Center for American Progress. Tracy, the the other large development uh, in in the last week has been the the criminal charges that have been filed. People have been calling for this for a long, long time to hold somebody accountable for not recognizing this sooner. Because it's not as if this crisis fell from the sky. You had residents complaining about the contaminated water for a long time before Snyder or even folks at the EPA took them seriously. Absolutely, and and these these charges are significant for a couple. Couple of reasons. As you said, one is that people, um, the residents of Flint and the country really wants 
people held accountable. Anyone who had some sort of um, hand in this disaster should be held accountable. But it's also significant because charges for environmental violations are relatively rare. So this is going to, um, I guess, put uh, local environmental agencies, state environmental agencies on on edge, on high alert that this is taken seriously and that you can't um, just be neglectful and not ha- have consequences. So the charges that the felony charges that were filed were um, filed by Michigan's uh, attorney general and the officials were um, the Michigan, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality um, and they also worked at um, some of the local uh, water um, municipal office in Flint. The charges were misconduct in office, conspiracy to tamper with evidence and tampering with evidence. So really what they found was a document that said that they tested many homes in Flint, um, and then that document was edited to have show fewer homes tested. So they reduced the sample size. So people are now assuming that they cut out the ones that would have revealed that there were high lead levels. Ridiculous. Absolutely. That's what it is. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Your calls for Tracy Ross, Associate Director for Poverty to Prosperity, here at CAP right after this break. Stay with us. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Minutes after the hour of The Leslie Marshall Show, back here with Tracy Ross, Associate Director for Poverty to Prosperity here at the Center for American Progress. We were just discussing lemonade here over the, <laughs> over the break, uh, and I haven't seen it, uh, but I've been told uh, by Tracy here I need to set out an hour. Yes. And and a full a hour. A full hour. Yes, because and it's, really indulge. It's a it's a stunning work of art. I will say. Um, I actually watched it with a few of our colleagues, and at oh, was this a cap event? I, it was a cap event oh. of sorts. I suppose there were well, a couple of times where we didn't realize we were holding each other's hands during oh. it. It was it was really well done, and I and I just have to say it it there's a great piece out there about how this is a love letter to black women. And I absolutely felt that. There's just wonderful imagery of, you see the the mothers of Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, uh, Michael Brown. You just see a lot of references to um, uh, things that are culturally specific to black women, and it's beautiful. I do think that um, people of all backgrounds can enjoy it, though. It's it's a a great piece of art, and I think that... um, uh, one of the things that I enjoy is some people will say, well, you know, maybe visually it was great and the lyrics, though, w- were something different. It is meant to be seen together. She makes uh, theatrical art now. She is in the, in the business of making musical theater. You know, it is really, I think, to me, satisfying. It is uh, makes me so happy to see... Beyonce or or whoever the artist is, when they're viewed as a voice of a generation, to take that responsibility so seriously and to do smart, compelling, thought-provoking art and not the kind of, you know, message we see in pop music all the time about whatever else, whatever trite kind of, you know, package you want to put together. I'm, now I'm Absolutely. excited to see yes, it. Because yes. it, it. It's rare that you you have that kind of social commentary that she offers in a smart way and in a way that's mainstream and in a way that really resonates with 
black Americans, but but also uh, the rest of the population. Absolutely, absolutely, and and, and um, I think the the fact that many people were um, have been mourning the loss of Prince since Thursday. No one can replace Prince. So before anyone angrily tweets at me, I'm not comparing them per se. But I will I will just add that you know he he um, left and and it made many fans like me upset because of so many of the wonderful things that he's done in terms of uh, uh, pushing a different view of masculinity and all these different ideas. Um, it was a good reminder that there there is art and and people using their platforms for uh, social change uh, this weekend with with seeing lemonade. If you do want to tweet at her. It's Tracy with an E-L Ross, double S, Tracy L Ross on Twitter. Michael from the Bronx Online 2. Michael, good afternoon. You're on with Tracy. Hi. Um, hello, Iga. Hello, Tracy. Well, honor to speak with you. Um, uh, I was having a little bit of interference. I wasn't sure if you touched base on the injustice that went on or has been going on in Flint, Michigan. Yes. Yes. All right. I want to be blunt. Okay, in my view, the governor, Rick Snyder, ought to be arrested and prosecuted as well. I smell a rat with all of this, as he knew doggone well of the conditions of that water, as told by the mayor and the people in Flint, who are majority African Americans. And this is the same guy who sought to come up with these um, voter ID laws targeted at minorities to disenfranchise minorities when it comes to voting rights and other equal rights. I mean, this Republican Party is so defiant and enemy to the Constitution and equal rights. And when the federal courts told them, no, you cannot implement voter ID laws because it's being discriminatory. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. I mean, what the hell is going on here now? Now they want to turn around and annihilate the opposition. All right. Thank you, Michael. Let me let me just jump in here and give Tracy a chance to respond. How much is the governor, Rick Snyder, responsible for what happened in Flint? Well, that's what the, the probe, the attorney general's probe, is going to, to help us understand. So, um, as I mentioned, there have been three people, low-level officials, who currently um, have tr- felony charges against them. But um, when point bank blankly asked the um, whether or not Governor Snyder could be implicated, the Attorney General said nothing is off the table. And this is going to be the largest probe in um, the, the state's history. So um, he's definitely being investigated. The uh, independent task force that he appointed actually said the uh, blame falls squarely on the state. I had an opportunity last week to talk with a couple of professors out of MSU who did some research for that task force. And they said, you know, going into it, the task force leaders didn't think that they were necessarily going to blame anyone. They didn't think that they would necessarily say this was environmental injustice. And they they looked at all the facts and they said the state is to blame. And this was clearly environmental injustice. What did the state do or didn't do? Why are they to blame? What could they have done differently? Right. So there, there's evidence with all of these emails. Emails is a big, you know, political thing these days. There's all of these emails coming out of the governor's office that have been released that show that um, there, have, there was information long before the governor declared a state of emergency indicating that residents were complaining about foul orders, um, you know, smell the, the look of the water. So the fact that there is um, uh, information in the inboxes of state officials and yet they did not 
act um, promptly is what people are calling into question. It, it, it involves the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, involves the governor's office. So they're trying to pinpoint exactly um, whether their claims that they they didn't know add up with the timing of the emails, all of these sorts of things. And do we know why they didn't take action? Well, so part of it is, you know, there, there's a lot of passing the buck going on right now. So not everything's entirely qu- clear. The um, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality um, was, uh, you know, there's some people in there that said that they were sounding the alarm, others that, that weren't taking it seriously. With the, with the task force's conclusion that it was environmental injustice, part of it is, whether it's conscious or not, is that you have a majority black place with majority low-income people, and more often than not in this country, the problems of those places aren't taken as seriously. So the fact that, you know, the emergency manager system said, you know, we want, we want to have this switch go on, we wanted to save some money, part of it was neglect, and part of it, whether conscious or unconscious, was that people tend to neglect these communities. 8886 Leslie 8886537543 Tracy Ross uh, in studio with me she's of course the associate director for poverty to prosperity program here at CAP and I say of course because I've said that <laughs> title three or four times somebody no you should know <laughs> how has this issue played out in the election we've mentioned Hillary really championing uh, the Flint water crisis, going to Flint, meeting with residents, meeting with leaders and asking, what could we do? What could I do? How can I help? Bernie Sanders taken a very similar approach. But I'll tell you why. And this really kind of pissed me off um, earlier, right before the Michigan primary. I went through the Twitter accounts of all the Republican presidential candidates, and I went through the websites, the official websites of these candidates. And you know what I found? I found that this big national story, this big national disgrace had gotten zero Zero mentions on any of the GOP presidential Twitter handles, zero mentions on their websites, and it's only been asked twice in a GOP presidential debate, the first of which was a question to John Kasich. He said, I don't know what Rick Snyder could have done better, but let me tell you what I did in Ohio. It is astounding to me that a big national story like this goes completely under the radar for Republican primary voters. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. That's why they're not talking about it, because they just don't care. And it's hard to imagine if the same thing was happening to... I don't know, some folks in the Bible Belt who right. had their water polluted and who couldn't drink their water for as many months as the crisis has been going on in Flint, Michigan, that this would be as ignored right. as it was by the right. Republicans. So a couple, a couple of thoughts. Well, one, Marco Rubio also weighed in and he praised Governor Snyder. So the fact that in the context of this, he went out to praise someone who, as our, our caller pointed out, um, serve some sort of role on this is it makes it even worse that that the only times that they talk about it is to pivot or praise the um, people who had a role in this. Um, second, you know this is an issue that should be a no-brainer for Republicans. Um, I, I it, it goes back to though that while I think you're right that they would definitely care more if it were in the Bible Belt versus a majority black. Um, um, city that's outside of Detroit, that's uh, in a you know state that that very much will go blue. 
there are people in the Bible Belt. There are people in states across the country, um, in rural areas in the South that are experiencing this. And the fact is that they just don't care. They just they want to, you know, focus on their culture wars. They want to focus on all these things that don't matter. And they're tricking. They work a lot of times to trick the low-income conservative people in the thinking that they're doing things. And I don't mean to be condescending, but at the end of the day, they don't want to help these people, and th- their policies keep revealing that. Well, and they certainly don't think government should have a role well, yeah. in helping those people. Tracy Ross, she's the Associate Director for Poverty to Prosperity here at the Center for American Progress. Thank you so much for being here. Tracy L. Ross with an E on Twitter. I'm Igor Volsky. The Leslie Marshall Show continues right after this. Stay with us. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. show for this Monday, April 25th, coming to you live from our beautiful studios here at the Center for American Progress Action Fund in Washington, D.C., sitting across the table from me now. By the way, I should say, I'm not Leslie Marshall. I'm Igor Volsky, Deputy Director of the Center for American Progress Action Fund, and joined here by a true radio professional in her own right, Rebecca Vallis. She's the Managing Director for Poverty to Prosperity here at the Center for American Progress. Rebecca, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Igor. And, you know, I I suspect uh, one or two people might have noticed you weren't Leslie Marshall before you told them, but that's that's just me. Well, look, (laughs) uh, you know, I don't... People, uh, I may come up... You don't... I I can go very high in my register. You can. can. When I need to. You know, if you were to make me laugh, for instance, I... (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Just like that. But but as a radio professional, I've learned to, to sort of move away from the mic when I'm gonna I'm gonna laugh loudly. You saw me do that. I there. saw that. That was <laughs> that was a very very practiced move. I yes, say. Yes, it was. It was. Well, we're here to talk about big news out of Virginia. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, on Friday issued an executive order restoring the voting rights of more than 200,000 people who have completed their sentences for felony convictions. Those individuals can now vote in Virginia and they can serve on juries and a whole host of other rights. Um, Rebecca, what do you make of this move? It's come under some criticism from Republicans in the state who say, well, given the governor's close relationship with Hillary Clinton, that this is just a political effort to help her win that state in the primary and, of course, in the general. Yeah, I mean, the the criticism is incredibly predictable, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But just to sort of start with nuts and bolts about what this move does, it's a really, really big deal. We're a nation that talks about, you know, one person, one vote. And and we, we all, including folks on the right, like to talk about how much we care about the health of our democracy. Um, But the reality in this country is that nearly 6 million Americans are currently denied the right 
to vote because of having a felony. I mean, that's an astounding number. Six Six million. million Americans who were convicted of a felony, served their time, and then re-enter society as what? As second-class citizens who don't have all of the rights of every other American citizen? It's pretty astounding when you think about it. Do we know and do you know the history of these kinds of laws? How did we get to a point where after you've theoretically, in the eyes of the system at least, paid your dues – and um, kind of made up for your crime, so to speak, that you still, in many states, don't have full rights. Well, and it's actually the vast majority of states, right? So in 48 states, if you are a person with a felony conviction, you have your voting rights stripped in some form or fashion. Now, Virginia has changed that, um, and a a really big step forward, it's actually 200,000 Virginians who are going to have their votes restored once they have served their probation, their parole, etc. and they finished out their sentences. Um, But just to back up a little bit and talk about sort of the significance of this nationally, right? Six million is a really, really huge number. Um, It should be staggering to anyone who's listening. But Another staggering number that really puts a, a much finer point on um, how what a huge step backwards this is for the health of our democracy and of our nation is that one out of every uh, let me get this right one out of every thirteen eligible African Americans in this country of voting age has lost their right to vote one out of thirteen because of felony disenfranchisement and so. Uh, basically what what states are doing is as you said they're they're telling people you're a second class citizen but it's it's also it's really impossible to look at this without uh, having the historical context of thinking back um, you know uh, centuries to when blacks were three-fifths Right of a citizen, blacks were three fifths, and and thinking about how hard fought the vote was not only for uh, minorities in this country but also for women through suffrage movements. That we, it's not that long ago that we're talking about in terms of people actually getting the right to vote to to the point that we're at. But now because of really the back end of mass incarceration and overcriminalization in this country, which has left one in three Americans with some type of criminal record, and nearly half of of American children with a parent with a criminal record. Uh, this has to be part of the conversation, making sure that we really are a nation of, of uh, one person, one vote, and and uh, where we uh, actually allow people to become um, uh, uh, full citizens when they've completed their sentences. Now, Virginia was one of four states, along with Iowa, Kentucky, and Florida, that placed a lifetime ban on voting for anyone convicted of a felony. In Virginia, you point to that one in 13 nationwide. In Virginia, one in five African Americans have until now been unable to vote because of a felony conviction. One in five. That is astounding to me. But to get back to the argument of the opposition that allowing these 200,000 people to now be eligible to vote, and there's a big difference, by the way, between being eligible to vote and actually voting. We know, for instance, in places like North Carolina, where we saw something similar, that the number of people that actually voted from the permitted population is relatively small. And so it feels like allowing people to vote is step one, that there has to be uh, 
more education, more services to ensure that the voting and the participation in the democracy actually happens. No, I think that's exactly right. I think it's also important to uh, to be really clear about what Virginia did and what Virginia didn't do. Yeah. Um, and so uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, should be applauded for restoring the the rights of 200,000 Virginians with felony convictions who can now who can now vote. Um, but what Virginia didn't do was to go quite as far as its neighbor Maryland, which changed its system to what is is widely viewed um, among experts to be the best practice, which is restoring voting rights to people automatically when they are released from incarceration. So rather than uh, saying, you know what, you came home, you're back in your community, but you still have a a term of parole or probation that you have to do, we're going to make you finish out all of that. What Maryland said was, you came back to your community. You're now a member of of society in in a way that says we should give you back your right to vote automatically. And the other piece of it, right, that is important here, particularly as you're talking about kind of implementation and and how this really plays out on the ground, is that some policies um, uh, in terms of vote restoration require people to file complicated petitions. They have to know that they're eligible. They have to, uh, you know, file uh, with uh, some kind of entity within the state and have have that petition approved so that they can can, um, get their vote back. And, And really that automatic nature of what Maryland has done is really a lot of what makes it the best practice because once you're home, you're back in your community, you get that right to vote right back. Now, here in Virginia, you there are steps you're saying you would have to go through, or is it a situation where after you've completed your parole that then your voting rights are automatically restored? So I can't answer that with specificity because I need to study this the sort of uh, um, uh, finer print on what Virginia has done, but there is a mix across the states in terms of how they have implemented vote restoration, um, and some ha- require that petition and some do it automatically. So I would need to study it to know what Virginia has done, but I can speak to what Maryland has done and why that really is the the national leader. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. If you want to get on the phone with Rebecca Vallis, she's the Managing Director for Poverty to Prosperity here at the Center for American Progress. By the way, she's on Twitter. You should follow her at Rebecca Vallis, V-A-L-L-A-S. I'm Igor Volsky, sitting in for Leslie Marshall. A quick break. We're back with more Rebecca after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Rebecca Vallis. She's the Managing Director for Poverty to Prosperity at the Center for American Progress. By the way, your calls at 888-6-LESLIE-888-653-7543. I am still not Leslie Marshall. I'm still Igor Volsky there. Rebecca thinks everybody knows that. Now, Monday, 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 uh, the beginning of the week, also marks the first day of the uh, re-entry week, the National Re-entry Week. Uh, announced by the Department of Justice, which seeks to empower former prisoners entering back into society. Very related to our last segment of restoring voting rights. Here we're thinking about ways to ease that process of entering back into society once you've spent years in in prison. 
Um, Rebecca, what is DOJ doing, uh, and what is it hoping to get out of putting an extra emphasis, a spotlight on prisoner reentry? So um, as you mentioned, the Department of Justice has declared this week National Reentry Week, and there are some 200 events happening nationwide in in local communities uh, across the country um, with reentry service providers like legal services organizations or um, uh, also with correctional facilities, and it's all to shine a spotlight on the importance of reentry. And part of why this is so crucial is for a number for the last really couple of years, we've been having a national bipartisan conversation about the need to overhaul our nation's criminal justice system. People have become really familiar with numbers like the fact that the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population, uh, that we're spending $80 billion a year locking people up, 2.2 million Americans behind prisons in bars and jails. Those are the kinds of numbers that you know, average Americans who don't work on these issues have come to know because the conversation has been so rich and so constant about the need for criminal justice reform. And it's become a bipartisan issue, it I should know. It has been squarely bipartisan. In many ways, Republicans actually leading um, a lot of, of uh, uh, the conversation that we've been seeing. Now, the piece of the puzzle that often gets left out is reentry. What happens when someone comes home? Um, or what happens if someone comes into contact with the criminal justice system but never even does any time? inside, but has that criminal record that follows them. And this has become especially important because, as I I mentioned before the commercial break, we're at a point now where one in three Americans have some type of criminal record. Nearly half of American kids now have at least one parent with a criminal record. And what does it mean in America today to have a criminal record? It's basically a scarlet A on your chest. It is something that can keep you from getting a job. You can have your resume basically thrown in the trash everywhere you go and apply. It can keep you from finding housing. It can keep you from getting education or training. It, It basically can stand in the way of of nearly every building block of economic security, let alone mobility. And that means it's become a major driver of poverty and inequality in this country, and particularly racial inequality. Um, And so that's a lot of what Reentry Week is about, is about saying, you know what, America, we say we're the land of second chances, but in reality, because of a broken policy infrastructure, having a criminal record has basically become a recipe for having a, a life sentence to poverty. How much can the president do on his own through executive action? I mean, as much as this could be and is and has been a bipartisan issue, it's hard to see in an election year, Congress working with the president, working uh, with Democrats to get this thing over the finish line, to get real bipartisan comprehensive reform of the criminal justice system. So what can the president do? What is he hoping to do? So the president has already actually done a lot, and, and perhaps he deserves more attention for some of the steps that he's taken. So back in uh, in November of last year, he, he gave a big speech at a, a re 
entry service provider in Newark, New Jersey, um, and he was flanked by men who themselves had experienced incarceration um, and, and were looking to move on with their lives. And he announced a series of policies um, that really are important steps in the right direction. One of the policies that he announced was about uh, reforming guidance to, uh, it's basically the rules that housing authorities have to follow um, if they are, are uh, subsidized housing, public housing authorities. Previously, what they had been doing was basically throwing someone's application in the trash if they had any kind of criminal record, even if it was just an arrest that never led to a conviction. And they were saying, screw it, we don't even want to consider you. And he said, you know what, that's not okay. And actually, we need to have these housing authorities considering each person individually on their own merit. So that was one piece of what he did. He also said, you know what, with one in three Americans with some type of criminal record, we can't be just excluding that huge portion of our population from the workforce. And so the federal government's going to be a model employer. And he he told the Office of Personnel Management, which handles all federal, federal hiring, he said, you know what, come up with, with policies to give people a fair chance when it comes to federal jobs. And, and that's in the works right now. Um, and then he also said, you know what, education behind bars is one of the most important, most effective policies that we have at, at, at our fingertips to help make sure that when people come out, they're going to have a chance to succeed. They're going to have a chance to actually get back into the labor market and, and to, uh, to you know make, make decent money so they don't end up right back behind bars. And so he said, I'm going to test allowing students who are incarcerated to have access to Pell Grants to help them pay for that kind of education and to make sure that that education is even being offered behind bars. So those are just three examples of the kinds of policies that the president has already put in place. But as you mentioned, there's a lot that Congress needs to do. And frankly, there's a lot that states and localities can and are doing um, that is incredibly important to make sure that people have a, a fair chance to reenter. And just very quickly, one of those actions that cities and counties across America have adopted is something known as ban the box. It's become a national issue, and it's part of the national conversation. Hillary Clinton talks a lot about it during her stump speeches. What is it, and is there something more the federal government can do to finally ban the box? So ban the box is uh, really a, a movement that has swept the nation. Um, at last count, 19 states, more than 100 cities had adopted ban the box policies. And basically what it does is it says, you know what, we shouldn't put that box that asks, have you ever been convicted of a crime on the job application? We should give job seekers a chance to prove their qualifications and, and only ask about that criminal record later in the process. So ban the box, kind of a misnomer because it doesn't take it out of the equ equation. Moves entirely. it up later it in the moves process. moves it later once somebody's had a, you know, a chance to show the employer who they are. Um, so that is something that states and localities are doing in droves. Um, and, and that is actually what the president told OPM to do. He said, I want to ban the box for federal hiring. And so what they're doing right now is actually coming up with proposed uh, guidelines for how that would work for the federal government. But I would challenge policymakers to go one step farther. It's a great thing to ban the box to give people a chance in employment. But really what people need the opportunity to do is to earn a clean slate. Once someone has remained crime-free for a certain period of time, they should be allowed to have a minor record automatically sealed so that they don't spend the 
the rest of their life with a scarlet A, and that's something that we're watching bipartisan lawmakers such as in Pennsylvania actually take steps to do. Rebecca Vallis, Managing Director for Poverty to Prosperity here at the Center for American Progress. Rebecca, thank you so much. And lawmakers, you heard the challenge. We'll hold you to it. I'm Igor Volsky. Quick break. Back right after this on The Leslie Marshall Show. After the hour, Igor Volsky sitting in for Leslie Marshall and the Leslie Marshall Show as we pivot back to the election. And, of course, tomorrow a big day for uh, five states across the country. But one man is uh, sitting comfortably atop the polls and atop the GOP field, that, of course, being Donald Trump, who's preparing on Wednesday to deliver a major foreign policy address. That's right, a major address with teleprompters and all. Here to preview Trump's remarks is Brian Catullus, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, at on Twitter, at Catullus. Whoa, what a great handle, Brian. Good afternoon. Hey, good to be with you, Igor. I tried to get at Igor, but no, taken. <laughs> Hey, Hello, it's good to talk with you. Good, to, good, good for you to join us. Listen, what here uh, do you think will be new in Trump's big address? We already know the basic theory when it comes to the Donald, which is, hey, listen, if those alliances like NATO aren't making America money, we're going to pull out and we're going to force the Europeans to fund their own security. We're going to pull out of the Pacific and let Japan and whoever else develop their own nuclear weapons to defend themselves and so on and so forth. Do you expect him on Wednesday to continue going down this road? I, I, I think he'll probably echo a lot of those same themes, but the main thing I'll be looking for is whether he tries to tack towards the center, something that his political advisors have been hinting he might do uh, for a while here. I mean, if you look at uh, Trump's worldview, um, in some, I mean, he thinks America just gets a raw deal from the international order that we helped build after World War II, and he's been deeply critical, as you mentioned, um, of that and of our allies. But it'll be interesting to see if he takes any steps towards the center here, because in essence, Trump has risen to the top as Republican foreign policy has collapsed. Um, We've seen this dynamic for, for the past several years, but Republicans used to be seen as credible and strong by many Americans on foreign policy, and that's been increasingly the case since, less the case since the Iraq War um, in the previous decade. And since then, you know, what we've seen is this collapse of Republican foreign policy and that Trump has been able to come in and freelance in the way that he has. So. Uh, I expect him to be consistent in some of his themes. He's been sympathetic to authoritarian dictators like uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia and other places. He'll probably still stick with that, and he'll probably still send a message of America gets a raw deal. But it'll be interesting to see if he takes more pragmatic uh, and centrist positions, as his advisors indicate he might. 888-653-7543, 888-6-LESLIE, if you want to be part of the conversation. Brian Catullus, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. Brian, are you then suggesting that the failure of Iraq, the instability in the Middle East that that unleashed, is that 
uh, or Trump's policy and, and the support it may garner in the Republican Party, is that now a response to these kinds of um, – to the situation we find ourselves in? Absolutely. I mean, I think the Iraq War is the political equivalent to what the Vietnam War was for the Democratic Party um, for, for a long while. And you see this in that Jeb Bush, uh, the brother of George W. Bush, uh, was a failed candidate, in part because he came out swinging in favor of the Iraq War and tried to, um, you know, stay stand behind those positions. And I think the, the party is still working out these issues themselves um, internally. Another dynamic that I think Trump and, to a large extent, Cruz, uh, reflects inside the party has been this fear of Muslims and fear of immigrants. This is not a new thing. You know, this is now we're into the sixth year of leading Republican figures um, hinting that Muslims were disloyal to this country, hinting that immigrants really are trying to take over the country and and voicing some pretty strident views that, that I think run against the grain of who we are as America. So um, in essence, you know, what we've seen since uh, the Iraq War, and it's now, um, you know, we, we're, we're back reengaged in Iraq, but certainly not in the way that we were before, has led to this political collapse of the Republicans on foreign policy, unlike we've seen um, in decades. Now, you make the point in a piece titled The Global Rise of Us Versus Them Politics that this kind of nationalistic foreign policy isn't isolated to the United States, that you've seen similar nationalistic movements, right-wing political movements in places like India, Turkey, and Israel. What can we learn from the rise of nationalism in those countries? What does it tell us about where we'll be in a month, in a year from now here? in the states well the the biggest danger here is that um if somebody like trump were to win um there's a real threat that it could actually undermine the very checks and balances um in our system and in the inclusivity i i literally just got off the plane uh two hours ago from a trip to italy and right before that i was in jerusalem in israel and a lot of our friends in israel uh, from the center left are deeply concerned about the steps that have been taken to close off uh, press freedom and the freedom of civil society and NGOs. And, and it's interesting, in Italy, a lot of my friends and, and people in the media I met with uh, talked about how Trump is very much like the former Prime Minister Berlusconi uh, of, of Italy. Berlusconi came in uh, with a similar kind of attitude, with a lot of money, and, you know, basically being very crass and not dignified as a leader. And Italians uh, were, were saying to me, uh, we hope your country doesn't go down this path because it actually wrecked uh, our economy. It led to all sorts of problems of the bleeding of corporate interests into um, how we govern and our system. And then the biggest thing I would stress, and I stressed in this article with my, my colleague, Gautam Adhari, that, that this dynamic could also produce an undermining of the very, you know, inclusivity and pluralism and tolerance that is, that is in essence, part of our democratic system here. Tell me about some of the responses you've seen. I mean, I imagine when you travel the world, people must kind of pull you aside and say, what is going on with Trump, particularly this very insular worldview, which, you know, we haven't seen in a national political candidate in quite some time. What do you say to them when they ask you, why is this happening? And how do you think this will impact us, us in uh, Israel, for instance? 
Yeah. Well, the first response, it's, it's hard to explain, but I basically say, look, I'm from central Pennsylvania. I come from a uh, working-class family, and I actually have some cousins who support Trump, in part because they feel like the system has left them behind. This issue of uh, the lack of inclusive prosperity in our country has, has actually led to a lot of people of many different classes and backgrounds to just be angry at the system. So I, I think we see that sort of both on the left and the right, where people don't like uh, what they see as the establishment, and they do like people who they believe call it like it is. Um, and, and in essence, you know, as I mentioned in that article, this is not uh, uncommon in other, other democratic systems around the world. So I try to explain to them in that way. I, you know, the, the, the thing that I say to, in response to the second question of uh, what to expect under Trump, I, my, I just give him an honest answer. I think that he's so unpredictable, and his style of leadership actually not only uh, would be bad for my country, that's my view, but would likely undermine uh, the interests of some of our closest allies and partners, whether it's uh, India, uh, where I think we have a stronger relationship, in part because of what President Obama has done, or whether it's places like Israel, where we've had our differences with the Israeli government, but, it, but in essence, they depend on us, and we, we depend on them um, for some core interests. And Trump is a wild card. He, he introduces uh, the potential of greater uncertainty in an already sort of uncertain geopolitical moment. You know, you talk to a lot of people here in the States, and and they say, oh, you know, he's going to – it's all theater. He's going to change his view when he comes to power, when he's faced with the actual decisions. Is that quickly, Brian, what you're hearing from people uh, in these countries that, hey, you know what, maybe when he comes to power, you, you'll have him singing a different tune? No, I mean, and, and again, most of my travels go to places like uh, Muslim-majority countries like, you know, the UAE, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Um, because of Trump's, you know, uh, proposed ban on all Muslims, there isn't this sort of, oh, he, he might actually tack to the center here. There's a genuine worry that the nature of America itself has changed if we were to elect him. Um, that, that we wouldn't be accepting of, of, of um, you know, Muslims and people of different backgrounds. So I don't think, you know, maybe in the first few months when it, nobody was sure that uh, Trump had staying power, maybe there was this, you know, sense that, ah, well, he could adapt or change or that the party would throw him out. Now I think uh, increasingly in established democracies and less democratic countries, author authoritarian states like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, um, there's, I think, a general worry about what Trump would mean as president of the United States for their uh, their systems. All right, eight 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 six Leslie eight 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 six five three seventy five forty three. We're going to take a quick break and then more with Trump with his foreign policy, figuring out what it all means for us and for the rest of the world. Sit tight. Back in a moment. Ami Gravolsky sitting in for Leslie Marshall. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. continues and we continue with the great Brian Katulis on Twitter again at Katulis 
Brian, President Obama announced this morning an additional 250 special operations forces will be sent to Syria, bringing the total number of U.S. troops to 300. Ha! Huh. Now, some folks looked at these numbers and said, what is going on? Is this a beginning of a re-engagement of American forces in Syria? The president, of course, saying that as the coalition is successfully isolating the ISIS footprint in Syria, that this action is necessary to continue to contain that threat. What do you make of it? Well, um, it could be a slippery slope into a wider conflagration if we're not careful here. Uh, President Obama um, and the U.S. military say we need these forces to provide greater support to some of the ground forces like the Kurdish forces that are fighting ISIS and also to help better target the air campaign, which is now more than almost a year and a half um, um, in train here. And, you know, uh, this move may be warranted by the tactical shifts on the ground, but the bigger point that I always try to stress is that in absence of a political arrangement and uh, diplomacy with the, with the different actors in the region, um, we're not going to be able to solve the crisis inside of Syria, whether we put you know more than 100,000 troops in there, which I think would be awful. So, so this move, you know, I think should raise red flags. Uh, about a potential for U.S. slippery slope here into a deeper involvement in the conflict. Um, I think we as Americans need to raise questions about how far is this going to go. You know, if it's 50 at, uh, at first and now 300, um, there's, there's not, if we learned anything from our years in Iraq, it's that U.S. boots on the ground aren't the solution. You need the forces there uh, in the region that are uh, should be fighting this. And it was interesting when this was announced, um, Saudi officials criticized this as just too meager and too little and too late. And we, we just put out a report today on Saudi Arabia, which folks can look at on our website. But my main point is that forces like Saudi Arabia that we spend and send billions of dollars of weapons to, rather than criticizing us, should actually get into the fight rather than our, our special forces. Why aren't they part of this fight? Why hasn't the administration successfully convinced them in great numbers to join the fight in Syria, a fight that's happening in their backyard? Well, part of it is um, they've diverted resources to a different war in Yemen. Um, and, a, and what's driving that is their perception about Iran, right? I mean, right now the Middle East is in the middle of this complicated hot war between two regional powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And the Iran nuclear deal, which I think was a major success for U.S. national security, has done very little to alleviate the threat perceptions and the mutual suspicions between these two powers. And these powers, along with some other countries, are essentially uh, contributing to the tearing apart of countries like Syria and like Yemen through these proxy wars. And everybody's basically supporting their favorite non-state actor, or in some cases like Iran, backing the uh, Assad regime, which has killed the vast majority of Syrians. So again, the key question Americans should ask is, do we really want American troops trying to referee in the middle of this? And to me, the missing link in all of this has been a more forceful U.S. approach that essentially calls calls it like it is, both with Iran and then with Saudi Arabia and the GCC states, 
and and tells them to basically cut it out. That rather than feeding, you know, uh, this this hot war in in multiple theaters, we we could, we could do a better job in in terms of getting them to stop these countries to stop their support for various extremists and in some cases terrorist groups. So, are there levers that the administration should be pulling that it's not pulling? in order to get these states in this conflict? Absolutely. I mean, um, the, the biggest leverage is the, you know, the record numbers of weapon sales we provide to these oil-rich countries. And as we saw with President Obama in Saudi Arabia last week, um, oftentimes we say to them that the, the, these weapons are to reassure you about the Iran nuclear deal, that we're going to have your back uh, against Iran. And, and I think that's fine, but, but it only goes for, so far. We should use those policy tools to also demand from them better actions, whether it's uh, special forces on the ground of their own in Syria uh, uh, rather than U.S. forces. Um, but the, so is it a matter of the, is the president not doing this, or is he doing this and Saudi Arabia is taking the weapons, turning around and saying we're going to do what we want to do? No, I don't think we've been as forceful. Um, and this is not just a President Obama problem. This has been um, stretches back even under the Bush administration and before them. But in essence, the U.S. has provided um, a, a, you know, a security umbrella and some of the most sophisticated weapons in the world to these countries. And look, other countries sell weapons to the region, Russia and China do, but not uh, to the extent that we do to these countries. And we don't we don't we don't use it as leverage. You know, it's not like uh, I don't think we've tried hard enough. I mean, uh, this is the one thing where we it, it's it's sort of like our policy stuck in the past, uh, a past where we were more dependent on their oil. We were more dependent on their security cooperation and we still need to try to cooperate with them. But we haven't used the tools at our disposal uh, as leverage. And that's that's the main theme of, of the report that we just uh, released today on Saudi Arabia, that we should work with them, but that we need to actually uh, call it like we see it more with them. I guess the question for many people is, and you pointed to it, Brian, Brian Katulis, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, is you're now at 300. The question is, where does it end, and what kind of timeline are we on for getting a political compromise, a political solution in place in Syria? I mean, you've heard the president, his advisors, members of Congress say time and time again that there's no military solution to the conflict, that it has to be a diplomatic political solution, and that the military aspect of this is designed to bring all parties to the table and negotiate in good faith. So is that happening? Uh, there's been an attempt, and I was in Geneva uh, earlier uh, in the spring with the restart of peace talks in Geneva with the Syrian opposition, which ha- have just collapsed again. And, and part of it is there's a disconnect between uh, the, the violence on the ground, the, the, the fight on the ground with the diplomats that are trying to construct a solution. Inside of Iraq, you have a little bit more of a linkage between the two because there's a government that exists and there's a certain degree of consensus. But in Syria, we're still a far way away from um, even a pathway towards peace. And the, the attempted ceasefires of the last few weeks have been falling apart, in large part because, not because of ISIS, but because of the Assad regime backed by Russia and backed by Iran, have started again to kill large numbers of its own citizens. And that's the one thing, you know, I think we miss in the headlines these days. In the, in the Syrian conflict, ISIS is a problem. It is a threat to U.S. national security interests. But the biggest killer of people, of Syrian people, 
is the Syrian government itself. So when people talk about this notion that we can somehow uh, might work with the Assad government, I think it's fantastical because I think, in essence, you've got now the estimates of 400,000 people killed in the conflict in Syria, which, which far surpasses some of the most recent civil wars. And most of those deaths are at the hands of the Syrian government. It makes it very hard to conceive of any sustainable peace without justice and accountability for the crimes that the, the government has perpetrated there. Uh, feels like a problem without a solution, frankly. It really, really does. You keep on saying you got to get a broader coalition, you got to get international actors, the neighbors involved, and they don't, and you're, you're sending more American troops. And Brian Catula, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, thank you so much. Always insightful. That's the Leslie Marshall Show for this Monday, April 25th. I'm Igor Volsky. been my pleasure to sit in for Leslie, and thank you so much for giving me that chance. Leslie, I think, whoever is going to be back here on Tuesday in maybe this chair, maybe some other chair. But until then, have a good day. And if you're in those five states tomorrow, vote.